I'm Misty Kalkofen, and this is the Drinking Like Ladies in Crisis podcast. This podcast is a companion project to our book, Drinking Like Ladies, where we asked women bartenders from all around the world to take inspiration from amazing women in history and invent drinks based on their lives. Eventually, and hopefully soon, each episode will celebrate a rad woman doing amazing things. But for now, we are inviting experts of all genders to offer advice in navigating the many challenges we are facing due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we are joined by Laura Green. Laura is a clinical mental health therapist who has a master's in education focusing on community counseling. She also works full-time as a spirits educator at Winebow in Chicago, Illinois. And although this may seem a little disjointed, Laura is taking her experiences from working as a bartender and a therapist to focus on mental health in the hospitality industry. In this episode, we'll chat about having bad days, being in the collective weeds, and offer advice on how to handle both of them. Here's our conversation with Laura. Laura, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here with you virtually. Virtually. <laughs> we're socially distancing. <laughs> socially distancing. Um, very safely because you're with us from Chicago today. So we are we are more than safe. <laughs> um, so can you start off by giving us a little bit about yourself and telling us about your path that got you to where you are right now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a hospitality and drinks professional, and I am also a clinical mental health counselor. So I study hospitality mental health and what that looks like and how we can help improve folks' mental health. I've been in the bar industry in a craft sense for the last 10 years, and then I've been actually working in the industry in some capacity since I was 17. So that's uh, quite a while now. Um, my degree is in clinical mental health counseling. It's a master's in education. Um, I am a licensed therapist, but I work for Winebow. So what I did with that is I wanted to, you know, really find a way to connect with the industry about mental health issues. There was obviously a need for it, uh, which, you know, the death of Anthony Bourdain certainly highlighted, I think. Um, I think people saw themselves in him in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think that certainly highlighted some of the issues within our industry. And yeah, so I started working really hard to, you know, try and share what I know and to help folks. So now I'm working for Winebow. I have been doing research about mental health within the industry. I am releasing my survey. I think by the time this airs, it'll be out and active like in the next two hours which is incredible so if you're listening that should be on healthypoor.org so yeah it's, it's a sort of world that straddles the work of a clinician and researcher with the work of you know the beverage industry and you know a person in leadership within the beverage industry it's kind of a wild ride but honestly I wouldn't have it any other way <laughs> it's been great 
I do think it speaks a little bit to the um, age old like adage of the bartender being a psychologist, you know, like (laughs) not to minimize what you've done because you've done tremendous work, but for sure though, like when I was behind, I was standing behind the bar when I decided to go back to school, standing behind the bar with a colleague and I we're sitting there and there's nobody really at the bar. It's one of those quiet moments. And I looked at her, I go, I think I'm going to go back to school for counseling. And this woman walks up and sits down and I like throw her a coaster, you know, that whole thing. And I'm like, Hey, what can I get for you? And she starts sobbing and she goes, a new husband. And and my colleague looks at me and she goes, do or die. And straight up walks away. (laughs) And I had to put together those parallels, you know, because it's so much of bartending is storytelling and connecting with people and providing them with something that they want or need or you know just filling some sort of a social um gap that's happening and therapy is like that but with like science (laughs) so you mentioned your survey can you tell us a little bit more about the survey and how it came about yes so the survey measures stress burnout and substance use And, you know, I've spent the last two years doing a lot of reading about, you know, all of these areas and making sure that the survey is constructed in a way that is safe and, you know, really captures accurate data. I kind of really have one shot to collect this information. And then, you know, COVID happened and all the restaurants shut down. And I took a look at my survey that primarily dealt with occupational burnout. And I was like, but nobody's working right now. So is there occupational burnout? Is that a thing? And then I was like, oh, snap, but there is emotional burnout. And we're going to start, you know, experiencing a lot of emotional burnout. So I modified the survey in a big way. And so it's measuring folks, you know, general mental health conditions right now, um, stress, their emotional burnout, and what substance use looks like. And that will be released throughout the entire um, time of the restaurant shutdown and a little bit after for folks to you know, take and engage in. And, you know, the more responses to it, I can get the better because it helps us advocate for mental health care within our industry. Like if I have really solid data and numbers to say like, this isn't just an economic issue, this is a public health issue. That's how, you know, that's one avenue that we can really take to create um, cultural and social change within our industry. So um, just so our listeners are clear, what is the end goal of the survey for you? There's a lot of things that I could really do with this data. And the first one is we're seeing a lot of nonprofits popping up around mental health within the hospitality industry. And this gives hard data for them to advocate for funding, for grant funding and whatnot. I mean, this data we could use. Um, to change laws around labor in the hospitality industry to show like these substance use issues are like quite extreme, which, you know, I expect to see come back from it, you know, and then of course, publishing in academic journals and stuff like that. The hope is once you publish something, somebody else uses that data to build off of it then. So the more we can get people in academia and not just in like occupational health or counseling or psychiatry, but also looking at like public health. Also, you know, finding through lines of issues within the industry, like in a pure data form, not just like this is what I observe or see, you know, it can help me to train therapists to help people within the industry. Um, You know, just the more, the more 
um, information that we can get informs the educational systems that we put together, not just for like our industry, but also for um, clinicians and practitioners who are, you know, seeking to help. Wow, that's tremendous. So it's really giving, putting eyes on an industry and um, shedding light in an area that hasn't really been studied, correct? Yeah. And there's a little bit of data out there. Like there's um, some in public health and we see a lot of it coming out of like hospitality universities like Cornell, but that's a lot of like hotel. I'm trying to get down to like the nitty gritty mom and pop sports bars. So this isn't reserved for craft work or fine dining. Like I want baristas, fast food, distributors, suppliers, folks who drive trucks in our industry? How are they being affected throughout like deliveries in this? You know, so there's, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of like fringe around the core bartender, if you will, or the core chef that are being affected by this as well. And I'm trying to capture all of that. Um, So for people to participate is the best way to do so to visit Tales of the Cocktail's website? No, it's, I would go through, um, it's healthy poor, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-P-O-U-R.org. And then there's two languages in Spanish and English. So it's for the English survey, it's slash survey for the Spanish, it's slash uh, encuesta. Hi, everyone. Misty here. We want to make sure everyone listening has contact information for available resources for mental health support. Crisis counselors are available 24-7 via the crisis text line. To reach a crisis counselor, text HOME, that's H-O-M-E, to 741-741. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration can be reached at www.samhsa.gov or 800-622-HELP. That's 800-622-4357. And the National Suicide Prevention Hotline can be reached at suicidepreventionlifeline.org or... 800-273-8255. We will repeat this information at the end of our interview and make it available on our website at drinkinglikeladies.com. Now back to our conversation with Laura. So I wanted to loop back. Missy and I were um, thinking we should loop back and just address the term mental health as a concept because um, it's something that's used quite broadly. It can be used somewhat clinically um, with professionals in the industry. But can you, you know, just explain to listeners who might feel confused or not understand exactly what that means, what the term actually means, and what are the types of factors that might impact your mental health on a day-to-day basis? For sure. So um, your mental health, like something that I like to say when educating about mental health is mental health is everything and everything is mental health. So the physical state of my body will impact my mental health. Um, What I look at out the window will impact my mental health. My relationship with my partner will impact my mental health. So it's mental health is essentially how we perceive ourselves in the world and the emotional life that comes from moving through that world that we are living in. So that's a pretty broad definition and that's kind of all encompassing, right? Um, I think when people think about mental health, they think about depression, they think about disorders like bipolar disorder or Um, you know, someone who's manic or maybe, you know, those more, those more extreme things, but we, everyone has mental health. (laughs) Everyone has some mental health state. Um, You know, when we talk about mental health, we're not just talking about when things are troubling or bad, you know, mental health is also a very 
there's a positive piece to that too. So um, how you move through the world and how you perceive the world and how you perceive yourself in the world, you know, and can you operate in a way that is, you know, healthy and communicative and productive, you know, that's, that's how we really balance and start talking about mental health issues. And, you know, folks who have these more, you know, challenging pieces, like, let's say bipolar disorder, you know, they have more challenges to be able to move through the world in a, you know, in a healthy way. And that's productive and self-fulfilling and, you know, all that. So I think that maybe we can shift a little bit and start speaking more specifically about mental health within the hospitality industry. And, um, you know, one of the things that Kitty and I know very well from having worked together many, many years in restaurants <laughs> is that, you know, isn't when you're working in this industry, especially in the front of a house position, you're not really allowed to have a quote unquote bad day. You know, you need to show up for your coworkers. You have to show up for, you know, your, your guests and you're supposed to always be this bubbly personality. Um, so let's kind of do this in two parts. What might, what, if we're in a good situation, take a pandemic out of the equation on a normal day to day for a hospitality worker, what kind of impact could something like this have on the mental health of somebody feeling like they have to always be on um, and not allowed to have this bad day? And then we can talk about what that may result in now in our current situation. For sure. So emotions are there to like, they're tools. They're to cue you something's wrong here or something's right here. They're indicators of what you need. The same way as if you grab a hot pan and you burn your hand and you're like, oh no, I burnt my hand. I'm not going to grab that hot pan again. They're your friends. Like we don't want to be feeling pain. We don't want to burn our hands all the time, but it teaches us something about ourselves and you know what we need to survive. So if you're feeling something on a day that's not super desirable and you have to go in and just like squash it down, then you're not addressing why those emotions are happening to you. So then you're moving through your shift of just like, hi, welcome. How you doing? Hi, welcome. Welcome to my bar. Whatever. Here's a cocktail. You're not feeling the things. You're not processing them. You're not like, you know, really trying to figure out where they're coming from so that you can make those changes. So then by the end of the shift, you're emotionally exhausted because all of these other emotions are like still there, but absolutely squashed down and then by the end of the shift you're so stressed out and so emotionally drained that you go to the bar and just like crush six beers or more and shots and then you go through it all again and never really addressing why your day was bad and so snowball that shift after shift after shift that's when we really start having problems. And it takes practice to be able to manage the emotions that you maybe are maybe are a little less desirable while you're in shift. But I think that's where our training really has to start moving to is living authentically within the shift and communicating effectively and learning how to manage emotions that are less desirable within the context of where you are, be it behind the bar or wherever, to the point that you that they're addressed before you even start so that you can start as healthy as possible. Could you imagine if that was your pre-shift? <laughs> <laughs> that when I was working in restaurants. Nope. Uh, <laughs> but it is, but it's, it's really something because on one, I go back and forth in terms of like creating interventions in restaurants because I don't want it to be on, I don't want the onus to be on 
necessarily the manager or the restaurant to manage somebody's mental health. At the same time, though, the restaurant or bar, they are paying you and they're buying your emotional life for that, for the duration of that shift, you know? So they're not just buying your time, but also your skill set. And again, your emotional life, your interpersonal interactions. And it's it does take a toll on your mental health. So like I said, I go back and forth. Is the restaurant, you know, responsible for caring for somebody? And I start to lean, even as I say it now, I'm like, well, yes, if they're buying that from you, then yes, it's emotional labor. And I think the interpersonal aspect of it is so important, right? Because I think we as an industry have been trained, all of us, that we're not supposed to have bad days. So we show up and we act that way, even though the person next to us might be, that we're working alongside, maybe having a similar situation to what we're having. And then there's also the interpersonal interaction with your guest, right? And you don't, that's much more challenging because you can't, managing that is obviously part of your job in far as, as far as service is concerned, but there's this whole other dynamic there that you can't manage, you know, as far as how that person is interacting with you. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. The guest and bartender slash server, whomever relationship is, is really, really, really complicated. So I had a moment in my, the last job I had behind the bar I was just standing behind the bar and this woman just started taking photos of the bar with me there. And I was a little sensitive to it because I was a practicing therapist at the time and I don't want to show up on someone's Instagram. And I realized like I was a prop and the realization that there is often, not always, often a dehumanization aspect between the guest and the person who is providing them with a really incredible level of service. And I think that that dehumanization is something that we as an industry should talk about more because we internalize that dehumanization. And so then you couple that with, I'm not supposed to have this emotional life, then you are turning into a service robot and your feelings and humanity is like, isn't even validated or acknowledged. You know, it becomes a skill of how do you navigate that interaction with guests so that you don't allow that objectification or in times that you want a really solid boundary, you do allow the objectification of like, I am your bartender and you are the guest and I'm not whatever. Um, but it also requires the support of the restaurant and training service training and integrating that sort of interpersonal training into service training to protect people from internalizing their dehumanizing interpersonal interactions. <laughs> I just had all sorts of like of memories, posts, you know, you know, yeah, flashbacks, memories from <laughs> from twenty so years many. of bartending. You know, like, <laughs> I'm just gonna breathe through this for a couple of seconds here. <laughs> no, but I do. I think it's incredible. It's incredibly validating to um, have a conversation like this and to just really think back about. Um, I mean, personally, to think back about all of the times that we've had those moments, but also to, you know, obviously the people who are listening, if they're in the industry are very familiar with their skills, uh, <laughs> having to do this on a day-to-day basis. And then you couple that, you, you you then throw in issues and prejudice around racism and classism and language and immigration and the roles that people play within our restaurants. And then 
the racism and classism and like sort of hierarchy within the structures that we already operate in and then put like the world on top of that with the stigma around working in the industry it's it can really weigh it weighs on everybody but it certainly weighs on certain populations heavier um than others which is you know worth acknowledging certainly and when we talk about mental health we like you know, we talking about these larger social systems, we also have to talk about those power dynamics as well. You know, knowing that this is kind of what people are dealing with as a baseline of their daily life, how might they be impacted as they're responding to a global pandemic? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Have to <laughs> <laughs> All right, buckle up, folks. No, it's... Um... <laughs> So let's go back to sort of stifling your, you know, undesirable emotions. Like when we exercise, we are creating strength patterns, strength and weakness patterns, flexibility and rigidity patterns within our life, right? You do bicep curls all the time. Your biceps are going to get really strong. Your shoulders might not. And that is the same for our cognitive patterns, our mental patterns and our, our emotional patterns. So if I'm really well practiced in stifling my stuff, that's what I'm going to start playing out in my life. So if you're working constantly and constantly practicing that, yes, of course, pattern, and I'm not going to acknowledge these emotions, I'm just going to deal with them after my shift by getting wasted. That's what's going to start playing out in your life. So then we start seeing that sort of interpersonal interaction play out in our relationships, like the ones that matter, like the people we're married to or the family that we're bonded with, you know, it's, that's, that's kind of a hard thing to swallow to see how your work as a service professional, a hospitality professional starts to bleed into your, you know, actual relationships that you're trying to keep on a lifelong basis. So now let's take that into a community trauma, like this pandemic. And this is like, again, there's layers to it because it is a social trauma. It's a global trauma. Everybody should be home right now. So everybody's feeling this, but hospitality especially is feeling this, right? But when we are so reliant on work for our identities, and when we are reliant on getting into that work pattern where our interpersonal interactions can be, you know, sort of bottled up and in a way protected, exposing that by not being in those circumstances anymore can be incredibly challenging. So it becomes hard then to emotionally regulate because you've never really allowed yourself the practice to do so because you just bottled it up. Yeah. I got to say, like, I experience it too. Like, and my fear for people is that they're experiencing these really big feelings and they're just squashing it down with whatever. And then following the same pattern of just getting absolutely wasted to numb it out until tomorrow happens and then do it all again. It's a lot. <laughs> well, I think we'd like to get into it a little bit, and I, just to maybe parse it out a little bit. Um, so in terms of coping, like, can you give us, just so people are, you know, you're talking about some some big stuff, right, and what we're all dealing with. So if people are listening and are kind of like trying to parse out what their experience is, you know, maybe you could give us a little, a few, um, a little insight or some examples of like what a stress response actually is. Yes. So um, a little terminology. So if I refer to a stressor, the stressor might be, oh, there's a global pandemic happening. That's a stressor. 
a stressor might be, oh, I have this deadline that I have to hit and then I'm like down to the wire. That's a stressor. And it's like, again, because feelings are our friends, that is an indication of this is something that I cannot easily manage and is like kind of a threat in a way. And a stress response is something like when you start sweating, your heart starts racing, your adrenaline increases, you become hypervigilant and your cognitive processing, like the way your brain is working is it's like hyper-focused on something and everything else falls away. And your emotional life is totally simplified. So your brain is essentially doing everything it can to make a simple response to something that is happening to you so that you can survive. Essentially, everything is elevated so that you can move quickly, adapt quickly, whatever. So we feel this a lot like at the service well when your printer is printing and you already have 20 <laughs> tickets down and the servers are like the servers right. are standing there with garnishes ready and they're like come on come on so then you would have a stress response some people just put their head down and get it down other people freak out different and those responses are coping mechanisms that are happening so that you can achieve what you have to do to get it done um, some people talk about uh, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Fawn is a little newer one that's been added to our catalog of Fs. Um, you know, either you attack it, you get away from it, you just totally clam up, or you acquiesce to it. You know, that would be your fawn. I'm freezing fawn, just so you guys know. <laughs> fawn is fascinating. And I see a lot of fawn within our industry because... It's how we survive. It's how we get paid, yeah. how we get, you know, by fawning and just acquiescing to whatever it is the other person needs and be mindful of how that then plays out into the rest of your yeah. life. Right. So then in terms of coping mechanisms, those usually align with the fight, flight or freeze. So like either you numb the stress response, you address the stress response or you numb then address. So like addressing the stress response would be just like putting your head down and getting it done and adapting, becoming a faster bartender, becoming more focused on what you can do, uh, coming up with better systems within your bartending to make it easier to get through a million tickets in X amount of time. Um, Numbing might be taking a few shots before you go after all of those tickets. So in terms of what coping mechanisms look like, what coping mechanisms might look like in a stressful time, like when people are trapped in their home during a pandemic, a lot of numbing, you know, because that's also a very practiced coping mechanism within our industry is numbing the response with use of substances. Um, exercise is a really interesting coping mechanism. Exercise and food are both really interesting coping mechanisms because they're essential to life, but they can also be kind of, um, we can overdo it pretty easily. And in an industry that's really great at overdoing things, we're really great at overdoing those. Um, you know, coping mechanisms are very personal things. Some coping mechanisms work for some people and don't work for other people. In terms of figuring out what's healthy for you in terms of coping and what's not, it just it takes time and personal understanding um, and practice. It seems very individuated too. I know for myself, um, just having attuned to some of my own coping mechanisms and responses, there's this phase of like, okay, this is like a healthy response. And then this is where I go into, okay, this is where my pattern turns into numbing. Okay. Like I, this kind of thing. Well, yeah. and I think it's really interesting that, you know, 
that that's something that can be so good and necessary for you can cross that line and go from being like something really important to being something that's so bad for you in that moment, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that can be really hard for us to find that moment of when we switch over or, and it's so easy to cross it and, and not recognizing that you're crossing it. It is like exercise. I mean, look, exercise is awesome. You produce endorphins, you feel good it, it, you, and your energy and your body is functioning and all of this stuff. But there is that line where you become very reliant on that endorphin rush to elevate your mood. And then you start using exercise as a way to pull yourself out of that mood all the time. And I don't want to tell people to not exercise because I want everybody to exercise because I want them to be healthy, but to be mindful of like, when are you, when is it becoming something that you are so heavily reliant on that you can't stop yourself? It becomes a compulsion you know, when things become compulsive is when it's just, that's the moment to start to take note of like, is this good for me? Am I, is my relationship with exercise healthy? Is my relationship with alcohol healthy? What is it doing for me? What is it taking away from me? It sounds like step one is just encouraging, you know, just encouraging that first level of conversation. 100%. And that can be done through like journaling. Like you don't need to you don't need to post your life on Facebook. You know? <laughs> like, I understand like, you know, or, or confiding in a friend or, you know, if you are talking to a therapist or therapist, but you know, just the first step really, you're absolutely right is to just acknowledge them for yourself and writing them down could be enough for you to start making changes. You spoke earlier about burnout. Can you go into more detail as to what burnout is? Because I think we all in our mind have this idea of what we think it is. And I'm wondering if my my idea is right <laughs> or not. <laughs> burnout is, to your point that I think people do get a little confused on what burnout is because it gets tied in with stress. Because stress and burnout are different things. Stress is like an immediate thing. But when there's burnout, it can come from feeling chronic stress. But really, from an occupational standpoint, when we look at occupational burnout, one of the main sources of where burnout comes from is a lack of appreciation. So if you are just working, 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 and you feel like it's unacknowledged entirely and it falls on deaf ears or it's not, you don't, you don't feel appreciated for the work that you're doing, that social um, exchange isn't happening, then you're going to start feeling burnout. Symptoms of burnout are first sort of emotional exhaustion and then cynicism. So the example I like to use for bartenders is when you have like the most lovely couple coming and sitting at your bar, right? And they sit down and you're just like, God, go fuck yourself. <laughs> you know? and, you, and you know that moment where you're like, there is no reason why I should be so aggressive in my brain towards these people, but I want nothing to do with them. And then the last phase of burnout is essentially apathy and um, you start like not being able to do your job properly. It takes you two hours to do a project that should have taken a half hour. Um, but burnout, again, it stems from, it stems more from a lack of social exchange, like a lack of, if you are 
let's say, working a 60-hour week all the time, and you don't feel like the organization that you're working for even acknowledges or cares, and if anything, they're taking advantage of that, that's when burnout starts setting in. What we call that is um, perceived organizational support. So if your perceived organizational support is very high, like the work I'm doing matters, um, the time that I'm putting in is appreciated, and we're all working together towards this one goal, you can work a million hours and you're not going to get burned out because there's an emotional component inside of you that is being fulfilled. Um, So Laura, one of the strengths of the people who are called to work in this industry is to team up, work together, and support each other when we're in the weeds. Um, So now we're collectively in the weeds, like the biggest weeds. (laughs) So much weeds. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about what this will mean for us as an industry? So I think in terms of our, our collective together, one thing that we can all practice literally right now is asking for help. Now, we're all very good at asking if we if somebody needs help, right? But we're not very good at asking for help. That's true behind the bar. That's true in life. Like, I get texts all the time. They're like, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm great. Lies. They're all lies. You know, like, <laughs> And this comes from my time in the industry. What I'm not good at is asking for help. Like if I need help, I need, I personally need to be better about saying, Hey, I'm feeling a little lonely right now. Can we get on a FaceTime, you know, with bar teams and I'm talking about mental health is start very small with the little things that we need help on. Like, can you help me take out the garbage? Can you help me by making this cocktail on this ticket? So if we practice asking for help instead of waiting for someone to come in and offer help and then say, no, I got it. Like I'm the most bomb bartender or whatever. Um, If we can practice asking for help and sort of like delegating our needs a little bit more, that behavior will start to spread. It's like provide giving them permission. Like it's okay to ask for help, right? But we actually have to ask for help and then accept the help when it's given. Like, it feels so good. Who's I think it was Brene Brown who says, like, how good does it feel to help someone? Give that to somebody else and let, let them help you. So then that moves into the next piece, which is moving away from self-care and going more towards community care. That if we are all, even though we're separate, if we are all connected and collectively helping each other emotionally and, like, kind of holding space for each other, that creates a much broader and stronger foundation as a community. We are a very strong community and we are very emotionally attached to our work and each other. So it's time to practice that and to do that. So I guess a tag question onto that, since we've just admitted that we're terrible at accepting help. Um, Do you have suggestions if I have a friend who I know is in a dangerous situation and in a dangerous place right now and not in a good place, but I'm getting that I'm okay response every single time I reach out offering help, whether it's emotional, physical, financial, whatever it is, I'm getting the, I'm okay. How do you break through that? You know, is it possible to do that right now with somebody when you're really worried about them? Um, so one way to start breaking through with that is to, cause you're essentially asking them to be vulnerable is being vulnerable yourself. 
and saying like, yo, you know, I'm concerned about you, but I'm also concerned about you because I'm concerned about me. And if I'm feeling this way, it's really likely that you're feeling this way too. Can we talk about it? You know, and if, if you provide a safe emotional space for your friend, and if your friends that should be pretty, pretty okay to kind of come into their emotional life like that. Um, if you can model again, like model that behavior of like, I'm asking you if you're okay, because I'm also not very okay. You know, like, can we, can we just share this together right now? If they're still not responding to that, it's, I think it's okay to straight up, straight and come out and say like, now I'm starting to get really concerned about you. And if you, I, I need you to respond or else I am literally going to send someone to your house or like, I'm going to come and see you. And I'm, I really don't want to have to leave my house right now, but I'm starting to get very concerned not, uh, not, you know, threatening, but like, I really care about you and I want you to be safe. Now, if someone is really not responding, um, I don't want people to shy away from like calling 911 and asking for a wellness check because, you know, I live alone. A lot of us live alone and, you know, we can't be monitoring the people who we're concerned about all the time because that's overbearing and claustrophobic for a lot of people. But if it gets to the point, like, I do not want people to shy away from, you know, sending in a wellness check. That's something to, and I know those are scary things to talk about, but like, you know, wellness checks right now when we're all trapped in our homes could certainly save lives. And I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. I think it's important to name. I think there's a lot of power in naming that. And, um, you know, because it's, if you've ever had to do one, which I have, it's scary. Um, it can feel really um, like you're violating someone's privacy. But And it's, and it's also important with like, conversations like that with your friends to address it early and often so that by the time if we don't want it to get to that point, but if it gets to the point that you do have to intervene with a wellness check or by calling the police, that's already part of conversations that you've had. Like if it gets to the point that it's really bad, just know that I'm going to, I'm going to call someone so that you're safe. You know, those kinds of conversations don't shy away from those either. Um, and being honest about them as well. Um, well, like all of, the podcast that we've recorded during this time, it's been some really heavy topics today, but uh, we like to end on the high notes. So what are the things that you're encouraged by? What are the things that you could see as coming out of this as a positive? Um, I am encouraged by the groups that are connecting on a global scale, like people who share a common goal towards improving our hospitality industry, connecting in a way that hasn't happened. You know, I think we all kind of wanted it to happen, but um, it's really, really extraordinary. And I know that there's a lot of projects in this realm that have been held back that are really moving forward now because people have the time. Um, and I'm absolutely encouraged by that. I'm encouraged about the way people are reaching out. You know, it's um, it's really extraordinary to see and the way people are stepping up and with speed is absolutely admirable. Um, but also the way that people are able to now talk a little bit easier about what their needs are of like, today is not a day that I'm going to do this. Bye. You know, and then they're <laughs> that, you know, that's, those are big steps. And I'm seeing a lot of that people doing what's right for them in that moment. It's awesome. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing for the hospitality industry. We really appreciate it. Oh, for sure. And thanks for, thanks for giving it time. I know, I know that that was a little heavy. Um, yeah, I hope it gives people some things to think about. Lasco. So we end every one of our interviews with what we call the last call lightning round. So they are five questions. And here we go. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. You're in a bar. You don't want to look at a menu. What's your go-to drink? Uh, bubbles, whatever bubbles you have. <laughs> <laughs> Is that freeze? Is that freeze right there? <laughs> I, my first thought was a shot of whiskey. And I'm like, that's not true. But that's true right now. <laughs> <laughs> that was the freeze. That was, that's awesome. Usually what, whatever what, bubbles you have. Girl, you can have both. Okay, this is your world. <laughs> All right. Um, if you could have a drink with anyone, living or dead, who would it be? I, my first thought was Abraham Lincoln, but I don't know. That's awesome. That was also who Bobby Hugel said. So. <laughs> I don't know why it was Abraham Lincoln, but like, I'm sure he'd have a lot to say. All right. Desert Island drink, just one thing for the rest of your life. What is it? Does it have to be alcohol? No. I think it might be Tobo Chico. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would say Topo Chico because I, if I was on a desert island, I think I could find limes, probably some pineapple. You know, I could have like these like spritzy goodnesses forever. <laughs> okay, now this is a tough one. Um, espresso martini. Bailey's or no Bailey's? No Bailey's. I just don't like that it makes my teeth feel like it's wearing little mittens. But like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I don't think it belongs. I think that you can make a bomb espresso martini without it. And finally, what's your last call song? Oh, only because it brings back good memories. Purple Pig in Chicago in like 2010, 2011 used to play Young American on repeat until everybody left. So they never really called. <laughs> they never really called Last Call. It's like passive aggressive Last Call. <laughs> so good. <laughs> A huge thank you to Laura Green for joining us today. I know for me, after so many years of working in the hospitality industry, it feels like a true blessing to have mental health professionals taking an interest in our industry and the specific challenges that come hand in hand with the work we do and the space in which we do it. I know, right? She is so amazing. Um, I'm really excited to think about all of the good things that might come from all of her important research. If you work in hospitality, please head to healthypoor.org. That's H-E-A-L-T-H ypour.org to fill out Laura's survey. It will contribute to research which will lead to improved mental health resources for our industry. If you're looking for mental health support right now, there are many resources available to you. Crisis counselors are available 24-7 via the crisis text line. To reach a crisis counselor, text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. 
Like we mentioned earlier, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration can be reached at www.samhsa.gov or 800-622-HELP. That's 800-622-4357. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline can be reached at suicideprevectionlifeline.org or 800-273-8255. We will provide an additional list of resources on the blog at our website, drinkinglikeladies.com. As always, a huge thank you to our amazing producer who makes us sound good, Mr. Chris Voss. Find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Drinking Like Ladies and on Twitter at Drink Like Ladies. Please subscribe to the Drinking Like Ladies podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts for updates on our new episodes. Until next time, I'm Misty. And I'm Kitty. And this is Drinking Like Ladies, a Spirit of Rock podcast. Thanks so much for listening.